1 Peter chapter number 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 in your Bibles tonight. We're going to begin in verse number 8, and we're going to read down through verse number 14. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse number 8, down through verse number 14. And as we continue to read here in the book of 1 Peter, we have been dealing with the Apostle Peter, dealing with submission. Uh, he has dealt with submission to authority. He has uh, dealt with submission to uh, not only earthly authorities uh, that we agree with, but also to earthly authorities, governmental authorities, those who are given the authority over us. Last week, we looked at submission in marriage, and we looked at husbands and wives, and we looked at how husbands and wives submit to one another and the characteristics of what a wife ought to have and the characteristics of what a husband should be. So all of these thoughts come together and we see Peter uses the word in verse number 8, finally. That is a word that is bringing to a conclusion or we might say bringing a verdict. He's bringing before us what he wants us to understand. What does all of this mean? And here's what he says. Be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Look at that expression again in verse 8. Finally, be ye of all, or be ye all of one mind. One word powerfully pulls together all of these thoughts of submission. And it puts them, pulls them together and puts them in a practical way. In other words, here are the characteristics that is going to demonstrate to you true submission. We often think about submission just being, completing whatever we're being asked to do. But do you know what it is to really be submitted to God and be submitted to His Word is when we are of one mind. And he writes to them, he says, Be ye all of one mind. All of you believers who claim to know and have Christ, you ought to have one mind in this matter. And that one mind is marked by these, this list he's going to give. He finishes the subject of respecting and submitting as citizens and to governments and to servants and masters and husbands and wives. He sums up the whole matter. And I like what it says here. He says, he that will love life in verse 10 and see good days. 
You know, if I was to ask you today, do you want to see good days? Very few people would say, no, I, I want to see bad days. But notice there are characteristics of a person who wants to see good days, who wants to, who loves life. Tonight, we're going to look at these verses and all the thoughts that follow tonight. I want us to keep in mind this word. Finally, be ye all of one mind. How do we live a life that is in one mind? I don't have to tell you tonight, we all are different. We come from different experiences. We come from different backgrounds. We come from experiences that have shaped us and molded and made us into what we are today. It would be impossible, completely impossible for all of us to come to one mind in a general way of saying, now take all of your experiences, all that you are, and think the same way. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about being of one mind surrounding the things of Christ. Be of one mind. Have one mind towards the things of God. I will never be able to change your experiences. I'll never be able to change what makes you, you, and makes me, me. But we could agree on this as believers. We can be of one mind regarding these things. Notice he gives very practical applications here about what it is to be of one mind. Even though there are differences tonight, there are different genders here this evening. There are different positions. We have different ages represented. We have a, really a pretty good uh, span of ages, even here tonight. We're at different places in our life. Be of one mind towards the things of God. What does it mean to have the mind of God? It means that we are seeking after His will. We're seeking after God's glory. We're seeking to be pleasing to God and to be accepted by Him, not to be accepted or pleasing to man. Ultimately, at the end of my life, I am not going to have to give an account to another human being. I'm going to give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ. What he thinks of me, what he sees in me, is what ultimately matters. Be in the same mind towards God. But in order to demonstrate that, we also need to have the same mind toward how we treat one another. You know, one of the things that concerns me so deeply is the fact of how we treat one another and the lack of respect, concern, compassion that we have, not just for people in general, but even for other believers. You know, my heart broke for that family in California that I've never met. I immediately thought of the pain that that man must have been enduring as I look at pictures and I see a wife and I see these three children and I say, how could you see that and not have your heart break over it? Well, one problem is, is and I saw this happen, some people immediately looked and his quote-unquote theology was a little bit more contemporary than some and that led them to somehow be able to justify, well, I guess I don't really have as much compassion because he believed this. 
That's so foolish. I mean, where is the where is the Christian compassion when someone's walking through a valley that deep? That the first thing we think of is, I better make sure everything about him lines up with exactly the way that I believe. I do know this, by his own profession, he had trusted in Christ alone. He may have varied in the way that he did some things, but he trusted in Christ alone. But where is that simple compassion? Be of the same mind towards one another. Again, when we see this, Peter calling believers to dwell in unity. You know, a lot of times we pray for unity in the church body. We pray for unity in the home. But do you pray for unity even in your daily interactions with people in general? To have a spirit of unity around having the same mind of God. He uses some very practical things. Look at this. Having compassion one of another. Compassion means to sympathize with. What I hear a lot of times in our compassion today is we feel sorry for them and then we tell them why they're in the bad place that they're in. We criticize them. So we say, boy, that's a real, real bad thing you're going through. But you know... If you wouldn't have done this, you wouldn't be in that mess. Now, folks, sometimes that's true. But where is it where we just say, you know what? Wow, you really are going through a deep valley here. You know, we're so quick to pounce on something we see that's different. And we say, wait a minute, you don't think exactly the way I do. You don't feel exactly. So that means I'm excluded from compassion. Absolutely not. I ought to sympathize Now listen to me, we ought to even sympathize for non-believers who are hurting. Now he's specifically talking to believers here, but shouldn't it be the believer's way of living that when we see something bad happen to somebody, we don't look at them and say, well, they're getting what they deserve because they're they're unsaved they don't they don't they're atheists. Look, where's just the compassion of saying, wait a minute, I don't want to see that. That's what makes it even more alarming that in our churches and other believers, we don't even have compassion anymore. We're so busy criticizing one another, we've lost the ability to have compassion. What does the Bible tell us? Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. You know what I found in my own life, and this is just me, It's easier to weep with others than it is to rejoice with others. You know why? Because that old wicked person in me comes out and says, why couldn't that have happened to me? Why don't I have that? It's almost as if we look and we say it's easier to cry with somebody than it is to actually rejoice with them. And I think for many of us, that's probably true. We have a hard time rejoicing that something else good is happening in the life of somebody else. Look what he says. Having compassion one towards another, love as brethren. Now the Bible describes in 1 John that one of the proof that you've passed from life unto death is love for the brethren. 
I mentioned this a couple of months ago. If we say, I love Jesus, but I hate my brothers and sisters in Christ, there's something wrong with our faith. Love as brethren, love as people who are in the same body of Christ. What is love for all the brethren? It's to love as Christ loved us. It's to love without hypocrisy. Not just in our deeds, but in our words. We are to love continually. True love, everlasting love, like we read in Jeremiah, never dies. Again, that's not easy to do. How do we express love for the brethren? Well, first, and these, some of these will be very practical tonight. How about just simply praying for each other? Just simply praying. You've, you've heard me say this. One of my biggest pet peeves is, and I'm just going to be very, very direct. Don't tell me you're going to pray for me and then don't do it. Okay? And I shouldn't do that with you. If I say I'm going to pray for you, then I'm going to pray for you. That's the easier of the two, because here comes the hard one. How do we show love as the brethren? We pray for one another. How about forgiving one another? Oh, that always perks people up. Forgive us. Forgiveness. Preacher, can we just skip that one? That's the hard one. Do I just forgive when they come back and make it right? No, you forgive them even before they come and ask for it. The hardest thing you'll ever do in your life is to have to let something go and let God take care of it and stop trying to make it all just fit together and say, God, you've told me to forgive. I'm going to forgive and I'm going to trust you. Now that's tough because we have rights, remember? We have rights. <laughs> Forgiveness is giving up some of those rights. It's giving up rights to revenge. It's giving up rights to avenge your name. And believe me, I know what it is to have my name drugged through the mud. I know what it is. But I've also realized that bitterness never helps. And it has never once changed a situation. Times when I've been bitter, times when I am bitter, it never changes the outcome and it only makes me worse. Right? Now that's just practical straight talk tonight. That just, bitterness just makes you worse. You think it's going to make you feel better if I hold a grudge, but you realize, boy, this isn't helping me at all. I'm just getting more and more angry and I'm growing more and more hardened and I'm not even helping anybody, right? These are ways you love the brethren, praying for one another, forgiving one another, share with one another, not just your tempor temporal needs or earthly needs, but spiritual needs. Look, if you're struggling with somebody, find somebody who's a believer and say, listen, can you pray with me about this or can I share something with you? And we show love for the brethren when we seek out one another for fellowship too. You know, one of the things we come to the house of God for, we call it a house of God, not because it's, it's the walls are special. We come to this place and we gather together regularly for fellowship and to be encouraged. You know, we actually need each other. We actually need it. You may not think you need me, and I may think I don't need you, but if you study the Word of God, you will find that the word fellowship and the need for fellowship is there. 
And so when we're out of fellowship with our own local church, we're out of fellowship with other believers, it doesn't help us any. When we get mad and we sit at home and we say, I'm not going to go back to church, you're not helping yourself at all. Plus, you're robbing that congregation of the encouragement and the edification that they need. You say, I thought we were supposed to get our encouragement from God. We do. But we also are to encourage one another. And then look at this phrase. There's a lot of phrases tonight. And there's whole messages on each one of these phrases. There really is. Be pitiful. Now, it makes you chuckle. It doesn't mean act pitiful. You all know what I'm talking when someone acts pitiful, right? It's not talking about pouting and having a pity party for yourself and, you know, making everybody see how rough. That's not what that phrase means at all. This is similar to the word compassionate, but it actually leans more towards being tender. In other words, be tender towards one another. Have a heart of compassion and be tender towards one another. Back in Ephesians chapter 4, this always... I, I, every time I, we get to this verse, I don't know which one of the kids it was, and I'm not going to embarrass them by remembering it, but one of them learned this verse, and I can remember them in one of their kids' clubs years ago learning one of these verses. And they would say it over and over and over again, and it's the, it's the epitome of what this tenderness is. He says in verse 31 of Ephesians 4, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speakings be put away from you with all malice. And here's the verse that I heard thousands of times. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. And when you were in the midst of bitterness and anger, and someone would say, and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted. It's like, that's not the verse I want to hear. And you know, I cannot read that verse. And every time I see it, I think about one of those kids saying that verse over and over and over again. When I struggle with bitterness, I remember and I hear one of the girls saying that verse over and over and over again. Now think about how hard that is. Be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving. Kind, tender-hearted, forgiving. That's easy, isn't it? Those are three qualities that are extremely difficult to actually live in real life. And why are we told to do that? Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. You realize all that you are tonight, all that I will ever be, all that we'll ever be together is based upon the love that the Father showed for us through Christ. And had Christ not extended His kindness and being tender-hearted and forgiving of us, you and I would have absolutely nothing to be hopeful for tonight or ever. It's all based upon what Christ has done. Compassion, love as brethren, be pitiful. And here's the next one. Be courteous. Used to be a day and age, schools taught all those things. You were not even allowed to be disrespectful in a school. You couldn't do it. 
even in my generation, you couldn't get away with it. Be courteous. Courteous is not a difficult word. It's being friendly. It is seeking those things which are agreeable and beneficial to others. In other words, you're going to seek out, you're going to, it's, it's kind of like being a peacemaker, but it's also to the extent that, that you're, you're, you're looking not just for yourself, but you're looking at what might be to the benefit of others. Pouting would be the opposite of being courteous. Courteous is being agreeable. Some people have pride in being disagreeable. There are believers I cannot talk to without them causing a controversy. Every discussion that you have comes back to something divisive. And I'm like, this is not supposed to be this way. Believers should be able to get together and not be divisive. They ought to be able to get together and say, wow, we can actually encourage one another instead of picking every little thing we can possibly pick apart. He goes on. If all of you got these down, we good? We've got all these? We could leave tonight and we got them down, right? He goes on. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing. Rendering evil for evil is, it's another word for revenge. So that last person that slighted you, that last person that ignored you, that last person that wronged you, that last person that did something bad to you, don't get even with them by doing the exact same thing back to them. Treating them the same way, guess what? Based on what we've already learned, what should I do instead? You ready? Forgive them. Forgive them. Don't return fire. Say, well, they did that to me. I have a right to do that back. Biblically, you don't. Biblically, we have a responsibility to forgive them. Now, it always leaves us to say, well, what about this? You don't know the situation. No, I don't. And the way I've looked at it in Scripture, I haven't been able to find that God put a condition on the forgiving. I think the forgiveness is something it isn't acknowledging that what they did was okay it's allowing god to take care of the matter now i dare say forgiveness is not okay i forgive them i can't wait till god gets them right <laughs> you didn't forgive them it's not just in word who else did we see scripturally who did not return when he was when he was spoken against. Christ himself. Look what it says. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing. But contrarywise, blessing. In other words, instead of railing, bless. That is, don't return harsh language. Said so somebody, just, somebody just gave me a tongue lashing, right? They, just, they really just laid into me. The worst thing to do is to lay back into them. Now, folks, I can tell you right now, if you lay into me, my first instinct is to lay back into you. And I can hold my own. And you can hold your own. But it accomplishes nothing. 
There have been times people have been right here in my face and they have just chewed me out. I'm talking as a pat. They've chewed me out. And you just kind of have to sit there and you just got to forgive it. And you, I'm not going to return this fire. I'm not going to respond in kind. You know, you think about the Lord himself. The Bible actually refers to, and I don't have the scripture text for this, but the Bible says when he was reviled, he reviled not again. And if anybody would have had the right to return, quote-unquote, return fire, Christ certainly could have done that, but he didn't. And then look what he says. Knowing that ye are thereunto called. Very simply, you're called. You're called to love, not to hate. You're called to bless, not to curse. You're called to forgive, not seek revenge. You're called to mercy, not to the, being the ultimate judge. Now get this straight. The Bible doesn't say we're not able to judge things. We're just not the ultimate judge. And one of the principles is, is before you judge a situation or a person, make sure you check the beam in your own eye, right? Before you point out the speck in your brother's eye, make sure that you get the beam out of your own eye. I love the way the Lord says that. He calls the other person's a speck, but he calls the one that's in your own eye a beam. Now, I'm not too smart, but I think the beam is bigger than the speck. I'm calling out the small thing in them while I'm trying to judge them before I pull out and look at the, I've got a beam in my eye. So, you are called to demonstrate the spirit of Christ, not the spirit of evil. That you should inherit a blessing. We're already called to receive these blessings because of Christ, but this, the, the meaning here, the intent here, isn't that I'm going to get something extra, but that this is a part of who I am as a believer. We are called to inherit a blessing and to be blessings to others. And then he says in verse 10, For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Now there's passages in the Bible that talk about the power of the tongue. Describes it as a fire. But you realize the tongue doesn't operate on its own. The tongue only speaks what's in the heart. In other words, when, when you say, you know, my, 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 my mouth said that, my tongue said that, no, actually that came from you. It, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't exist on its own. Now this, what he says here, this phrase, for he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Peter is actually quoting Psalm 34. So if you want to turn back there, and I just want you to see this. So again, he's not just making these things up. He's quoting Scripture to these believers, Jews and Gentiles alike, who would have understood this. In Psalm 34, verse 12, he says, What man is he that desireth life and loveth many days that he may see good. Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears are upon, open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry and the Lord heareth and delivereth them out of all 
their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and save as such as be of a contrite spirit. It's referred to the man who desires to live a true Christ-like life. A man or a woman who desires true communion with God, who wants the blessings of Christ upon him and who wishes to be like Christ, this is what he'll do. He that loves life and to see good days will refrain his tongue from evil on his lips that they speak no guile. Abstain from lies, abstain from slander, gossip, harsh words, criticism. I'm not trying to be cute, but if you say, I don't mean to gossip, you already are. Right? That's as practical as I, that's as, that's as low of a shelf as I can put that on. If you, if you come to me and you say, Pastor, I don't mean to gossip, you already are. I had this rule that if you're going to talk about somebody else before you actually mention who they are, you'll say their name and then I'll say this, well, let's go get them. It's amazing. People back way off of that and they say, whoa, I don't want to do that. You know what that stops? If you've got something to say, say it to that person. Let's say, let's, let's go make sure that they understand this. There's no place for gossip, not even in the church. There's no place for gossip in our home. You know, tongues that are evil tongues and lips that speak guile, they, are lie, they speak lies, they slander, they gossip, harsh words, criticism, even boasting. Boasting can be considered an evil, evil words. And then he says in verse 11, let him askew evil. That word askew literally means turn away from. Turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. He's still quoting Psalm 34. Ensue means to pursue after. So he says, let him turn away from evil, do good, let him seek peace, and pursue after what? Pursue after peace. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. Turn away from evil, seek righteousness, avoid the company and conversation of evil men, and instead seek the company of believers and do good. Seek peace and pursue it or ensue it. Not only do we seek peace with God, but you ought to seek peace with your fellow man and fellow believers. Lots of people talk about being willing to forgive. They talk about how much they love. They talk about showing kindness. But when it comes to actually doing it, they don't do it. This is pretty practical. I mean, I know we, we deal with a lot of like, especially in our Roman series. I mean, we're like in the, we're, we're neck deep into theology, right? This is one of those sections of scripture that you come to. This is the beauty of when you preach this, the preaching and exposition, you just get to it. And one week you're, you're in this deep theological, you're just in this abyss, right? And here's something that's like, there's no real deep theology to this. This is like practical. This is the way you actually live what you believe. Because if your theology is right, this, is, this will line up perfectly. That's why doctrine matters. People say, I, just, I don't want the doctrine. I just want the practical aspect. You won't be able to live the practical aspect if you don't understand the doctrine. 
The Holy Spirit still operates in the realm of using the doctrine of the Bible to teach us and instruct us on how to live these things. And by the way, you can't do this without the Holy Spirit anyway. This, this has got to be God working through you to forgive that person, for example, who has harmed you and harmed you deeply. You're not going to be able to forgive just in your humanity. It's not going to happen. Why? Because there's too many things that run through the mind to say, here's all the reasons why I can't forgive. Yet, you can't name one reason Christ should have forgiven any of us. You can't give one reason. Why did Christ forgive me? He forgave me because of this. He became... No. He forgave you even though you were guilty. He loved you even when you didn't love Him. You had no desire for Him. This true forgiveness, this kindness, this willingness to love, this warning that he gives in verse 12, that's really what this is. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. It's interesting. He mentions the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. To do what's right is to have God's eyes directed towards you. And to have his ears turned unto them. It's a way of promise that those who do good or do according to the word will receive the approval of God. When you see the face of God is against them that do evil, that means God is in opposition to you. So the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. That means, or over the righteous, that means you have God's approval. But when the face of the Lord is against them, that means you have God's opposition. I don't know about you, but that's an easy choice. Do I want God to accept or to be opposed to me? I think the answer is pretty clear. We want God's acceptance. Those who seek righteousness. Now, folks, here's the problem. We can deceive each other. We could even deceive ourselves in thinking that I'm the most forgiving person, I'm the most loving person, I'm compassionate, I don't render evil for evil, I don't return railing for railing, I, 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 I want to have a good life. We can deceive ourselves into believing that we're actually living that, but it's not just about our actions. I could outwardly look like the most kind individual you've ever met, but my attitude and my spirit is wrong. You know, people deceive themselves all the time by saying, I'm a forgiving person. I'm a loving person. I'm a kind person. I'm a compassionate person. Yet God looks at them and says, you're none of those things because your attitude is terrible. Your heart is deceiving you into believing, hey, I'm doing all right. I'm forgiving. No, the reality here is is that we can have, we'll have God's face against us if we have a bitter spirit. Or how about a self-righteous spirit? Boy, that's the one we're good at. I'm so much better than they are, right? I, I you know, look at that person. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm 10, I'm way better than they are. Not really. Or we're proud, we're unforgiving. It's an amazing thing that the greatest error today of even the person, and again, you folks know I am a strong, strong believer in sound 
biblical doctrine and being grounded. That's why we are absolutely hammering these truths. It's why we're, it's why we're speaking and preaching about grace all the time. I am, a, I am a believer that you've got to get this grounded. But I'm going to tell you something. We could be the most doctrinally sound church anywhere in this country, but if we don't demonstrate these things, that's all for naught. I could be the greatest theologian you've ever run across, but if I don't demonstrate these practical things, my theology, my doctrine matters little. It, it has no value. I might be able to describe, tell a person all about justification. I may be able to tell them. I may be able to correct them. Hey, you're wrong on grace. That's not what grace means. Oh, you're wrong on sanctification. That, you know, we could even do that in the wrong spirit. We, could, we can get so wrapped up in our doctrine, we go to people and say, what do you mean you don't know this? And we become now the corrector of everybody. Now look, sometimes we've got to do those things, but we've got to do things in love. And even if we get the doctrine right and we miss this, I don't know many people who'd ever want to be part of a church that's got its doctrine all together, but it's filled with a bunch of people who are unforgiving and unloving and gossips. Nobody wants to be there. You know why? Because that doctrine ought to dictate how we live. We live this way because what the Bible says. We live this way because this is what the doctrine teaches us. This is what Christ is showing us. The greatest error today is that or the greatest danger we fall in, we fail to remember that God sees, knows, and measures all of our motives. He knows exactly why you're saying what you're saying and why you're saying it and what you're wanting to accomplish out of it. And realizing that just speaking it to somebody doesn't mean that you actually really want what you're telling them. In other words, you might say something kind, but in your heart, you're really saying, I don't really believe that. Some of you know there's a saying in the South, it's not good when you hear this, okay? Well, bless your heart. That's not good. Many times they're saying something and really underneath it, somebody told me this, underneath all that, they're saying, no, that's really not good. What I mean by that is that sometimes we can say it but our heart really doesn't mean it. We don't really mean what we're saying. We're, we're saying it with a smile, I forgive you, but we're not really forgiving. And then look what he says. He says, and who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? What harm can possibly come to you for walking with God? What, what is the negative? I mean, think about this. What's the negative of walking in obedience to God? What is the negative of obeying his will and living according to his commandments and seeking to imitate Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit? For the believer, there is nothing negative about that. Yet, it's so hard to live according to these things. We even get the promise that we've, we have read over and over and over again, the promises that we see in Romans chapter number 8 that reminds us of who we are. In Romans 8, 31, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? 
If you are walking with God, he goes on and says in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. All these things, what harm, what can harm you if you do and imitate God? And then look what he says in verse 14, but and if ye suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye. If you do all these things and you still suffer for them, happy you should be. Because that doesn't sound very happy. I'm trying to live a life that's pleasing to God and I'm receiving persecution. I'm receiving suffering. Happy are ye. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Now remember, going back to the context, Peter was talking about people who were living in different provinces who were under Roman authority. He's told them, obey the Romans. And he said, if you suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye and do not be afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Now next week we'll deal with, he goes on and he comes back to a little bit more doctrine, but primarily he comes even goes further in this practical aspect of this. If you suffer for the truth, if you suffer for what you believe, if you suffer for having humility in Christ, if you suffer for returning good for evil, consider yourself to be blessed anyway. Be not afraid of their terror. Don't be afraid of the opponents of the truth. Don't be troubled by their hatred. The presence and the blessings of God are upon you. The Lord said in the himself, the Lord said in the Sermon on the Mount, or the part we refer to as the Beatitudes, the, the blessed phrases in Matthew 5, verse 10. He said, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's talking directly to those who are persecuted. Theirs or their reward is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. He tells them very directly, when you're persecuted, he's talking to his disciples, I realize in his day, he was telling them that you are going to receive insult, you're going to receive mistreatment. Because of these qualities that he had given them in the Beatitudes, these things are going to cause people to revile you. To revile is to insult or to mock, to make false accusations. He says, your reward is in heaven. For, folks, joy is possible in the midst of pain here because we trust that everything we lose here in an earthly manner is all going to be better in eternity. Whatever I face here is going to be more than repaid. What I lose here, if I'm reviled here, if, if, if I'm spoken of evil here, I am going to repaid, be repaid more than that with eternal blessing. And as Jesus told them, they said, even though they persecuted the prophets, they're going to persecute you. Somehow along the line, we've got the idea that 
we're not going to have to suffer. Folks, it is going to be hard to live this kind of a life in the midst of a generation that, quite frankly, has lost even the basic tenets of this. I mean, even non-believers were taught to be courteous. Now we live in an era where it's almost, it's rare if you find courtesy anywhere. But that ought not be so among believers. You know, when we come into this place or whatever, whatever church you end up at someday, if it's not this one, if it's somewhere else, you ought to be able to go in there. We ought to see this. We ought to be able to see a church that is all of one mind. They are compassionate. They love as brethren. They're pitiful. They're courteous. They don't render evil for evil. They don't return railing for railing. They refrain their tongue and their lips from evil speech. They seek to do good. You know, the reality is, is when we talk about all these things, we think about we are, as the Bible describes it, and many writers of old, have, we, we, are, we literally are pilgrims. We are literally passing through. And I think most of our issues come from the reality that we've got too much emphasis placed on what we suffer now compared to what is awaiting us. And it's hard to describe that because whatever amount of time we get, if we get 100 years, if, if, we, if the Lord allows our boundaries to be 100 years, it will be nothing in comparison to what eternity actually is. Our minds cannot comprehend that heavenly standard. We cannot even begin... To, it does, our mind can't even compute it. But yet... We're not supposed to be concerned about winning the approval of man's standard. We're to be worried, not worried is a bad word, but to, we're to be obedient to God's standard, not living up to man's standard. But the best way that you can fight against evil is to live these principles. So even when that evil man speaks against you, the best thing for you to do is not to speak evil back. Speak in kindness. Christians ought to be concerned about what pleases God more than they're concerned about what pleases others. This pleases God. Now, I understand tonight we don't add to God. We don't make God better. We don't take anything away. If every one of us failed to do this, God is still God. But these were not given to us as suggestions. These are given to us as what ought to mark the life of a believer. This ought to mark people who are of one mind. He says, finally, be ye of all of one mind. Next week, we'll deal with verses 15 down to the end of the chapter. So if you'd like to read ahead for that, uh, we'll, we'll deal with that next Wednesday. Let's go ahead and stand all around if you would. I do appreciate you being here this evening. I hope this was a help. I hope it was an encouragement.